Uh, here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to begin to kind of move into the book of Revelation. So if you guys wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, we're going to talk about this real fast. Um, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work on this. So we started several weeks ago, and really the book of Revelation is a book that was written by a guy named John, John the Apostle. And he was one of Jesus' very close, good friends in the ministry, uh, one of Jesus' sort of inner circle. And when Jesus uh, resurrected and ascended into heaven, uh, one of Jesus' chief disciples, John, went out, became a pastor. And he began teaching God's word, and he started churches, and he faithfully served God, and taught God's word to lots of different people all around the ancient world. And John was believed to be the longest living uh, apostle. The rest of them died. Uh, Most scholars believe around 65 AD, somewhere around there, 65, 70 AD, Uh, or fortunately, John was able to continue to live. And John, for the next several years after that, just continued to be faithful, preaching the word of God, especially in a hostile environment as the ancient Roman world was towards Christianity. And John ended up becoming sort of an enemy of the culture. And John was then thrown in prison, uh, attempted uh, to be killed, and John didn't die. And instead, John ended up becoming exiled upon this... uh, island called Patmos. And it was on the island of Patmos that John received this vision. And it was from the vision that John wrote the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, it was a story or a vision written according to a particular genre of literature called apocalyptic. And John basically wrote down everything that he saw. And that's what we're reading today. We're going through the book of Revelation, but it's based upon a vision that John received by being a pastor who was in prison on the island of Patmos, and that's what we're reading. It's a story, or it's a revelation, a vision about Jesus. So we're excited to go through this book and to let our minds, let our hearts, let our lives be transformed by Jesus. So I'm going to pray right now, and we're going to then begin to take a look at this great book, but in particular, these letters that were written uh, to John by Jesus meaning to be or intended to be delivered to various churches scattered abroad in what was called Asia Minor back then, or today it's known as modern-day Turkey. And today we're going to be taking a look at a letter written to a church called Thyatira, a very insignificant city. We'll, we'll look at it in just a moment here. But it's a city that had gotten caught up in all sorts of sexual idolatry, all sorts of wickedness that was kind of defining its uh, existence, And Jesus writes some very stern letters to this church, and he wants them to basically wake up, and he wants them to repent. And what we're going to be taking a look at today is, be straight up front with you, it's going to be pretty heavy stuff. It has to do with sexual sin, and this is one of the benefits, honestly, going through the Bibles, or disadvantages, however you want to look at it, of just going straight through the Bible. You end up having to deal with everything, all right? Um, To be really frank with you, if you want to build a church and have people come and have people walk away feeling really good about themselves, you just don't teach the stuff that we're going to be looking at here today, all right? It's straight up a rebuke, and it's a rebuke to a bunch of people that are acting like frat boys, that are always having sex, and always living it up, and basically Jesus just says, stop it. He just says, knock it off. Otherwise, I'm going to come to you, and you won't be a church anymore. And so it's pretty serious stuff, all right? So I'm just going to let you know that up front probably more so in the PG-13 arena. And you probably won't walk away feeling like really good about yourself. But honestly, that's one of the 
things about going through the Bible. You just have to deal with it as it arises, and that's where we're at today. So, that said, let's pray, let's dig in, let's see what Jesus has to say to this church, and consequently to us. Father, we ask you right now that you would open our eyes, and God, we just confess that for us, we oftentimes just read our Bibles um, discriminately. We pick and choose verses that we really like. God, we confess that that's, that's oftentimes to our own shame. It's oftentimes to our own sin. And oftentimes this reveals what type of people we really are, that we don't really want to address sin in our lives. And God, we just confess it to you right now. We ask that you would help us to be people that reflect you. God, you address sin. We want to be people that address sin. We don't want to do it in a self-righteous manner, in a manner that goes around looking at everybody else's sin, everybody else's messed up. God, we want to do it in a manner that looks at ourselves first and foremost and addresses it in our lives to do exactly what you said, Jesus, to look at the log that's in our own life before we go on and point out the specks at everybody else's. So help us right now, God, we pray, to take a look at this real serious subject, God, but to look at it in a, in a manner that's honest, to look at it in a manner that's humble, to look at it in a manner that... Uh, exalts and honors you and is just honest. So we pray for your help today. God, help me to be able to communicate this stuff in a way that just emphasizes your heart and not just uh, my opinions and not just any other type of emotions that I might have as a result of this. So God, we just commit this morning in your hands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read. I'm going to start off by reading the letter, and then we'll get to work on this. So I don't have the slide for this, so you guys will actually need to read this out of your Bible, which is kind of a good thing. But go ahead and open up to uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. I'm going to pick it up right there, and here is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and feet like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your letter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works, or of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches who know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you uh, your works that you deserve. But to the rest of those that are in Thyatira, who know not, who do not hold to this teaching, uh, who have not learned uh, what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay upon you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have heard until I come. The one who conquers, the one who keeps my words until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Uh, this letter, am I on? I am on, okay. Um, this letter basically is not one of those letters you pick up and you read. You're like, I just want Jesus to speak to my heart. 
good, nice, warm, fuzzy thing so I can walk away, feel really good about myself. This is not one of those letters, all right? I mean, this is a really strong rebuke. I mean, Jesus is pretty angry with this church. Get that? I mean, he's basically like, look, unless you change, I'm going to come and kill you. I mean, I'm going to turn off the lights. I'm going to shut you guys down. I'm going to put, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to nail uh, wooden beams across the front door of your church. I'm going to make your church die. I mean, it's pretty serious stuff. I mean, here's a question. Are there good churches and are there bad churches? Yeah. I mean, are there churches that Jesus actually says, I hate that church? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing when you think about it. I mean, there are churches. I think there may even be churches in, in the Central Coast that Jesus would perhaps look at and say, I actually hate that church. I mean, this is a church that Jesus is really not happy with. He's really frustrated with them. They're messing up. They're uh, walking around and just graven sinful practices. They don't have any mind or any heart or any desire to serve God, to follow after Jesus. They're not sensitive to the things of the Spirit. They're just basically in blatant, outright sin. And basically Jesus is like, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the way you're living. I'm tired of the way that you're just blatantly ignoring me. He says, like, listen, I've given you guys time to repent, and you've not repented. I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to fight against you with the sword of my mouth. It's going to be over. All right? You've stopped paying your phone bill, your electric bill, and everything's just going to be shut off. I'm closing the doors for good. That's basically what he's saying. It's a very strong rebuke that Jesus makes against this church. So before we even go any further, I want to just kind of take a look at a little bit about the city Thyatira, kind of familiarize yourself with it a little bit, and just get a little bit of a context of it as to what's going on here. So the first thing I want you to see in terms of a slide, we'll take a look at it. again, this little picture here. You guys already kind of see this. Take a look at the arrow. You see where, uh, see the area where it's at? Oh, wow. That's wrong. It's pointing to Pergamum. That's wrong. I messed up there. My computer crashed this morning. That's the excuse I have. Uh, so Thyatira, you see just down a little bit to the, to the southwest of that. Next slide. Um, we're going to take a look at a, a, a little bit about the city. Okay, this guy, this big statue is Apollo. He's pretty much known to walk around naked. So I, all the pictures I found of him were him naked. And so I made him some clothes. Um, and it says Pergamum, which is also wrong too. So I really messed up on my slides today. I don't know what's going on here. It's actually not Pergamum, it's Thyatira. And uh, we're going to take a look at the city of Thyatira, and that's the main city that we're looking at. It was a blue-collar city. That much is true. All right, that's true. Pergamum is not the name of the city. It's Thyatira. He does, it, it's a city that's um, it's full of these trade guilds. We know that because archaeology has discovered that. One of the things that they've discovered that there are these, uh, all these trade guilds, wool workers, linen workers, dyers, leather workers, all these types of things. One of the other things that it was known for was bronze smiths. They had these uh, smiths, these little shops set up where they would make bronze and they would fire the bronze in these kilns and all this. And um, because the city was sort of like this blue collar type city, it was, it was renowned as and known for a lot of just workers, hardworking people. The location of the city was kind of in a valley. It was right off of a major trade route. And uh, so therefore it was very vulnerable. It was not really that much of a city. It wasn't that great of a city. In fact, a lot of scholars kind of read through this particular letter and they kind of scratch their head and they wonder why Thyatira? I mean, why? I mean, there's nothing significant about the city that they've ever been able to uncover, discover about this particular city. 
um, other than the fact that it was known for its trade. Um, and that's, that's kind of what gave it notoriety. It was kind of like, uh, maybe in today's day, like a Pittsburgh or Cleveland or Scranton, all right? It was kind of like a place where people just worked hard and it wasn't really that great of a place to live. Nobody was really stoked on being there. And you just kind of did your work, went home and woke up, did your work, went home. and just kind of the routine of the day. Um, but because of the, um, the trade guilds that they had, the city was also known for its kind of patron deity or principal deity of the, deity of the city, which was known as Apollo. Now, Paul is kind of an important guy. He was actually the son of Zeus, which made him, his designation, his title was son of God. He was the son of God, okay? That's also going to play in the text. We'll see here in a moment. But Apollo was also known as sort of a political god. He was the god that sort of overseen um, kind of leadership or politics. Uh, it also kind of gave him the designation that he was kind of like a shepherd god. Uh, not so much shepherd meaning the people that watched over sheep, but shepherding in the sense of politics, taking care of people, take, overseeing uh, different types of rights and rulership and leadership and whatnot. That was the type of God that Apollos was. Apollo. And then um, what we also see kind of with regard to him is that he is oftentimes viewed as uh, the sun god. He was the god that essentially sort of deified a big, bright, shining ball in the sky called the sun. That was what Apollo uh, represented. Now, each of these trade guilds obviously would have paid uh, patronization and respect and sacrifice to Apollo as a part of the typical ritual. So, unlike today, where let's say if you were to join a union, you don't have to like bend your knee and worship some false god to join that union today. It's not the way it works. But back then, that's the way it worked. So if you were to be part of kind of a trade guild or a union, which is kind of what those trade guilds were, you, would, you were basically obligated to worship these gods. The reason for that was kind of simple. That the god over those particular trade guilds overseen all commerce, overseen all business, and made sure uh, the economy was moving and flowing. So when things kind of slowed down, um, you basically don't just simply work harder. You do do that, but you also sacrifice more. You give more of your time and energy and devote it to Apollo in this particular case. You offer more sacrifices to Apollo. You do whatever types of uh, uh, ceremonies or sacrifices or worship uh, indulgences that you would do in order to make sure that the economy would keep moving along. You would sacrifice more in this particular case to Apollo. Another uh, place in which Thyatira arises in the scripture, you recall, um, in the book of Acts, Paul the Apostle ends up going over to this region called Macedonia. And when he's in Macedonia, he meets this girl by the name of Lydia. And we're told that Lydia owned a house in Macedonia, uh, Philippi, but she also owned a house and lived in Thyatira. She was a very wealthy woman. Uh, she had a lot, a lot of money. She was a businesswoman. She was basically from the city of Thyatira. She, we're told, was a seller of purple. Again, which was another preeminent type of uh, fabric or color that they would have back in the ancient world. And it all kind of came through Thyatira. One of the reasons why Thyatira was well known as a main producer of this color of purple was because of these little snails. They would take these little snails and grind them up and they would produce this like really bright, vibrant purple color that became sort of the clothing of kings. Um, you recall when Jesus was crucified, they put upon him a purple robe and it was sort of a mock, uh, a, a mockery to Jesus and it was in, done in jest to basically say, 
you call yourself a king, you're all bloodied up, and you're all bruised, and you're all destroyed. You're not a king. That was sort of the, the, the mockery that they were putting to Jesus. Purple was a color of royalty. Most of the purple that day came out of Thyatira. So with that, we begin to sort of get a little bit of a picture about the city. So kind of in a nutshell, what we see about Thyatira again, blue-collar city, had its patron deity, God, uh, uh, Apollos, who was the son of God, who was the sun god, and was also this god that was known for shepherding over the nations. So with that, let's take a look at verse 18, and we'll see how a little bit of the cultural context plays into the passage itself. Verse 18 says this, To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, who has feet like burnished brass or burnished bronze. Now, one of the things that, first of all, that you see, obviously, that Jesus identifies himself as he's writing this letter to the church of Thyatira, and he says, look, I'm the Son of God. (laughs) Uh, In fact, it's the only time that Jesus really ever addresses himself as the Son of God, which is kind of unique. It's as if Jesus is like, look, Apollos is not in the same league as me. He may be the son of lowercase god Zeus, who's really not a god, but I'm the son of God. And he addresses himself as such, and he says, I have eyes like a flame of fire, and I have feet that are like burnished bronze. Uh, Again, burnished bronze I think would probably be significant of the fact that because it was a trade guild town, because burnished bronze was something that they had produced often and regularly, so they were quite familiar with the strength of this particular metal and how it was produced. And so Jesus says, I'm the son of God. And I got feet like burnished bronze, something that you guys are familiar with in mass production within your own city. But he also says that I have eyes like a flame of fire. Eyes, throughout scripture, oftentimes are symbolic for sight or vision. So when he makes reference to his eyes, he's talking about eyes that are able to see something. And then he also says that his eyes are like flames or like fire. And fire throughout scripture is often symbolic of purification or judgment. So fire, depending upon the type of material that goes into it, will either be consumed, if it's hay, right, if it's some sort of grass, it's destroyed. If it's silver, it goes into the fire and it's purified. So here's what Jesus is saying, I think. He's like, look, I'm the son of God, and I'm looking at you guys with eyes that see through you, not just see you, but see through you. I know who you are. I can look into your soul, I know what you're like, but my eyes also have this purifying and judging type of impact upon your life, okay? Now think about that. That simply means this. You and I, we have absolutely nothing to hide from God. But think about how many times we often think that we can do that, right? We sometimes think that we can hide things from God. We think because we're good at hiding it from our spouse, or from our coworkers, or from a boss, or from a family, that we just, we can also somehow hide it from God. And so Jesus basically says, especially in the realm of sexual sin that we're going to be looking at, there's something about this type of sin that has sort of this idea about it that says, you can do it, nobody knows, you're totally fine, it's all cool. But Jesus basically makes the point, he says, look, I know what's going on. I see what's happening. I see through you. My eyes are like flames of fire. I know it's taking place, and I can understand. I know what's happening. I have eyes that see through and not just on the surface. 
The next verse that we see in verse 19, it goes on. It says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, interesting thing, part of, uh, interesting thing about this church is that not the, the whole church is not all messed up. There's a segment of the church that's solid. But there's also sort of this influence or these influencers within the church that are messed up. Traditionally, I look at it like this. In, within any church, you've got sheep, you've got uh, shepherds, and then you've got wolves. All right? The shepherds, hopefully, are good. And they influence in a positive way. You've also got wolves. Wolves are not good. They like to devour. They like to eat plump sheep. All right? They're bad. They are evil. They like to take advantage of people. They like to hurt people. They like to wound people. If I can put it this way, wolves are negative. Shepherds, positive. Sheep, neutral. All right? Sheep are neutral. Sheep can go either positive by following Jesus, following the shepherd. And if the shepherd's a good shepherd, he's leading them to Jesus, the good shepherd. Sheep go positive. If sheep are influenced by the wolf, then sheep go negative. Sheep follow whatever shepherd they have in front of them. If it's a good shepherd, they go to Jesus. They love Jesus. Their hearts want to be transformed by Jesus. They're fine with casting their sin upon the table. They don't have any problem with recognizing their evilness, their wickedness, and casting it before their good Savior who will wash them, cleanse them from their defilement, and heal them. If they're if they have a bad shepherd, in this case a wolf, the shepherd will lead them away from Jesus. He will take them away from the life that God wants them to have. And they will be influenced by this negativity. Alright? That's the direction that almost any type of church will be defined by. Shepherds, positive. Sheep, neutral, one way or the next. And wolves, negative, who will always lead people away from Jesus, the good shepherd. So in this particular church, there were some good shepherds, obviously. And there were bad shepherds, obviously. And so some of the sheep were divided. Some were following after the good shepherd. Some were divided. They didn't know where to go. They were going after the bad shepherd. But it seemed as if the negative influence within this church was increasingly growing. It was like a leaven that was just constantly moving forward, moving through the rest of this church influencing in a negative way people. This is oftentimes what happens in church splits or when things get messy within the church. It usually starts with one person who's grumpy. They don't like what the pastor said. They don't like his wife's hair color. Whatever the case is, they just become grumpy. They begin to form their little groups of people and they begin to spread their venom, their lies, their toxicity throughout the rest of the church and what you end up is having a split. This church was a church that was on the verge of some sort of a split, all right? Not over insignificant things, but over very significant things. That's why Jesus takes the time to write to this insignificant, blue-collar, working type of a city. Okay, so what we see here, Jesus says, I know your works. Uh, Ergon is the word, love, agape, faith, Pistos, which is the word that's always used throughout the New Testament for faith or trust in God. Service, diokino, we get the uh, English word deacon from that. And patient endurance, hupomone, hupomone. And this is what they also had, this idea of patient and endurance. These are, a, this really, this segment of the church was really good. And I think Jesus commends them for it. 
It's like you guys, there's a portion of you that is doing great. But then there's also this other portion of you that's not doing great. So the next slide as we kind of move on into this. In verse 20, we begin to see some of the problems that this church was in all actuality having. It says this in verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit sexual adultery with her, and I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And it says, I will strike her children dead, and all the churches know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of according to their works that they deserve. So here's what Jesus basically wants them to know, is that there's a lot of speculation as to who this gal Jezebel is. So there's all sorts of uh, commentators that come along and some people are like, you know, it's kind of crazy what some people think. I've actually read some commentators and they're like, some people think this is Lydia. You know, like you hear the drum beat in the background, like Lydia, this great girl starts out good, but she goes back and she's like got this bad negative influence. She's all messy. There's absolutely no way to support that whatsoever. I think that's not a good way to view that. The other one, I also another, read another one. Someone was like, you know, maybe this is the pastor's wife. Look, if you go to a church and your pastor's wife's named Jezebel, it's probably a good idea to check out. Go to another church. It'd be my guess, all right? Or if she even resembles Jezebel, it's probably not a good thing. So my, my guess, it could be his wife, but I doubt it. it but some have been, uh, you know, even further assumed that, you know, maybe this is just some... Uh, arbitrary lady in the church her name's obviously not Jezebel and yet she's teaching she's been given sort of this ability to teach and given this authority to kind of lead but what she's doing is she's leading in a false way in a bad way I kind of think that's probably what's ending up what's happening here it's not so much that there's somebody I don't think there's somebody in the church named Jezebel um, but there's probably somebody in the church that's like Jezebel so some of you are like well who's Jezebel all right we'll talk about that in the Old Testament, in uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, there's this lady by the name of Jezebel. Um, FYI, if you're looking, if one of the day you're going to have kids, don't ever name your daughter Jezebel. You never probably want to name your son Judas. There's some names that you just don't want to pick or select for your kids. Jezebel's definitely one of them. All right, so this lady Jezebel gets this reputation of being very, very wicked and evil. Because in the Old Testament story, what ends up happening is she becomes sort of this uh, this uh, queen, she's actually a queen, all right? She's married to a guy by the name of Ahab, who is one of the kings within Israel. So you're like, well, why did the king of Israel marry such a wicked and evil queen? The answer is probably out of some sort of political alliance, but once she came into power, once she basically seized her control, she basically just wore the pants in that household. It was bad. It was a bad scenario. And what ends up happening is she has her own little posse of priests, and she has sort of this false religion thing that's going on. And she's calling all these priests to basically worship their false gods. Gods of Baal, uh, which is one of the pagan deities within the land of Israel. And she basically gets so bad that she ends up going out slaughtering all of the good priests. All of the priests of Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah. She wants to kill them all. And remember, there's this one guy by the name of Elijah. He was alive. He was the prophet of the day. And it's, it's, it's incredible because on this mount called Mount Carmel, 
I've actually been there several times. Every time I go to Israel, I always go to Mount Carmel. For some reason, I always am given the opportunity to preach at Mount Carmel. I love it. So I stand at the very top of Mount Carmel, and I just preach this, this, it's not amazing, but I think it's amazing. Anyways, I preach this message. It's not my message. It's the one that Elijah preaches against this woman named Jezebel. And what ends up happening is he goes down and he kills 400 prophets. I mean, we're talking a massive prophet side, priest side, whatever you want to call it. All these priests end up getting slaughtered at the hand of this guy named Elijah. But the crazy thing is, this is how powerful this woman Jezebel was, Elijah finds out that Jezebel heard about his mass slaughter of all these false priests, and he gets his word back that says, Jezebel is so ticked off at you, she's going to kill you. The dude runs for his life and hides. All right? Think about that. One woman against, Je- uh, against Elijah who just killed 400 priests finds out that one woman wants to kill him, and he runs for his life and hides out in a little cave out in the middle of the wilderness. He recognizes this girl's got power. She is an evil, evil, evil woman. All right? And that's basically the story. She was known for the idolatry, the paganism, and the sexual immorality. That's what she was known for. So when Jesus writes this letter to the church of Thyatira, he says, there is a woman in your midst, Jezebel, and she's teaching and seducing your people. And they're buying it. They're listening to it. They're tolerating it. They're not doing anything about it. That's what's happening. And Jesus is like, this is horrible. What's taking place within your church is you guys are doing nothing about this evil woman. And think about it. I'm, it's very probable in the church that nobody would actually look at this lady and call her evil. This is the irony in this. Because maybe if you lived first century, you went and you lived in Thyatira and you went to the church service and you saw this lady, you probably would look at her and be like, she's actually like dynamic. She's charismatic. Right? Maybe she's got gifts of the Spirit or whatever the case is. She has this ability to prophesy or bring the word or preach or whatever the case is. But whatever what was going on there, people were being seduced by her and nobody was discerning her. Nobody was doing anything about her. Everybody, as it would appear, was just sort of tolerating her. Maybe some of the people in the church were just like, ah, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. You know, we don't want to, like, cause any waves. Let's just be quiet. Let's just not say anything. We don't, want to, we don't want to be the contentious group of people there in the corner. So what ended up happening was this group of people in the church just did nothing. And in their doing nothing, Jesus basically knocks on their door and is like, look, what you guys are doing, i.e. nothing, is really bad. That's what I'm upset about. I'm upset because you're doing nothing. You should do something. You should not tolerate her evil. But instead, because you just tolerate her, and I've given her time to repent, and you've just done nothing, there's going to come a time that I'm going to come to this woman Jezebel and all those who follow her, he describes it as her children, and I'm going to bring my judgment against her. And it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be pretty. Nobody's going to like it. Everybody's going to be sitting around scratching their head and wondering what in the world has happened to us. And Jesus is like, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge unless you do something about the evil that she brings. And we're basically told in the text, we're given a couple little hints. 
One of which is it says that she's teaching and seducing the servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. Now again, I think this probably plays into the cultural context of the worship of these trade gods or these uh, trade guild gods like Apollo or some of the other gods within the day. And again, what I said earlier is that one of the means by which to sort of stimulate the economy back then was you didn't just simply work harder, which you did do that, but you also began to offer these sacrifices to these false gods. And if you were to essentially be profitable in that community, you had to participate in the worship of these pagan deities. So here you are, a Christian. All right, let's say that you sell purple. All right, and you're going downtown, and they're like, listen, you got to worship Apollo. You're like, I can't. All right, I, I, I worship Jesus. They're like, you got to worship Apollo. You can't sell down here unless you worship Apollo. So you go back to church. Now you're sitting in church. This lady stands up. She preaches. She's like, you know what? Hey, the reality is we live in a culture where everybody just worships Apollo. And you got to do what you got to do. I mean, you got to do what you got to do to survive. If you got to worship Apollo, if you got to have sex with other false deities or other people, go ahead and do it. It's no big deal. God will forgive you. He's a gracious God. He loves you. He offers forgiveness to those who turn. You know, he, he is just a gracious God. Just go ahead and do it. It's fine. So it would seem as if some people were buying into this sort of ideology or this doctrine, this concept, that in order to continue to just keep moving forward and being profitable within the culture, in order to gain some sort of success, you just worship the god Apollo and some of these other trade gods, which would involve sexual practices, sexual activity, and this type of mentality that would just sort of sell out to worship these false gods or to eat this meat that's sacrificed to idols. And here's what Jesus is saying to these guys. He's like, this is wrong. You guys are capitulating the culture rather than changing the culture. And that's the problem. You're just giving in. And you're not standing strong against this thing. The reality is we live in a culture today that is so sexually charged. I think more than ever in the history of humanity. Ever. That's a huge statement. It's a huge statement. If you guys have that little sheet of paper that's got like sermon notes and all that on there, I put a bunch of stats on there for you guys. I encourage you to check them out. I don't even have that paper with me, otherwise I'd read it to you right now. But check it out. Check it out. Read some of the stats on there. All right? The reality is, is we live in a culture right now that is so sexually charged. All right? I mean, honestly, it's so bad. It's not just men that are getting engaged and getting lost in sexual immorality. You know this past week... Oprah, even Oprah, I mean, when the prophetess of the age starts addressing issues like this, you know it's pretty bad. She, on her show, had the top porn star in the world, and she interviewed her. The whole point of it was just like, look, tell me about what you do, because the reality is, is one out of every four women are stuck in online pornography. This is not a guy thing anymore. This is not just dude sitting in his room all by himself and getting lost in pornography at night, one o'clock in the morning. All right, this is women throughout the day getting lost, getting stuck, getting trapped within this pornographic system in our culture today. I mean, the reality is it's, it's not a small issue. It's huge. And it's more accessible than ever before. There's more pit, pit stops or more traps, more pits for us to fall into than ever before. We've got to be aware of this type of stuff. 
We've got to be aware. Otherwise, what will end up happening if we just engage the world, if we walk into the world without being aware, or if we just walk into being ignorant, we will be destroyed. We will find ourselves practicing things that basically Jesus straight up says, I hate. I hate the fact that you guys do this. I hate it. I, I will come and I will judge you unless you repent. But the reality is that you pick up in the text. There's three different times in this text right here. Jesus says, I gave them time to repent. Do you know that Jesus' season for repentance has an expiration date? I mean, let this sit in for a second there. Jesus has an expiration date attached to this little window called repentance. Now, I think it's a big expiration date. I think when Jesus says repent, that expiration date can be way off in the future. But the reality is, is ultimately in his heart, he just wants us to turn from those wicked things that take us away from God, that pervert our mindset, that destroy the way that we view other people, the way that we think about other people. He doesn't want us to live like that. And so as a result of that, Jesus basically says, look, I want you to turn from it. It's the word repent. I want you to walk away from it. I don't want you to be stuck in it. Because it ends up sucking life out of you. It ends up destroying you. And it ends up destroying the very fellowship of churches or people that I love. I love my people, Jesus would say. I love the church that I bled and died for and gave myself to redeem and to purchase for purity's sake. And the reality is Jesus is just so fed up with this church. He's just like, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the way that you do nothing about this sort of besetting sin in your midst, in your personal lives, and nobody cares. Nobody does anything. They just turn a blind eye away. So what he goes on to basically point out in verse 23, he says, I will strike her and her children and all the churches that know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I think the point that Jesus is really driving home again is the fact that he's just like, look, I, I don't tolerate sin. I don't tolerate sin. I want you to think about this. The reality is oftentimes in our lives, we do tolerate sin, don't we? I mean, here's a, here's a sense. We will tolerate sin in other people very little. Right? When somebody offends us, we are so quick to fire back. Right? I mean, I know for me personally, I, you sin against me, I, I, I don't have a lot of patience. I don't have a lot of tolerance for it. I will fire back. That's not a good quality of me at all. Um, in fact, it's a really bad quality of me that I'm praying that Jesus changes. I'm certain my wife is praying that Jesus changes. But the reality is, is that when it comes to me personally... It's easy for us as individuals to just tolerate sin in ourselves a lot more. We don't, a lot of times with other people, we tend to, even within a big church setting, I mean, this, this, the reality is, in our church, we've got a lot of young people, but it's not just young people that end up stumbling in this. I think this is one of the biggest problems that I talk with more people about on a regular basis. It has to do with sexual sin. It has to do with pornography, it has to do with masturbation. It has to do with your eyes wandering. It has to do with all sorts of things. And it's not just men. It's also women. It is the number one thing that I deal with on a regular basis with people. 
And to be really frank with you, it's probably one of the most hardest things for me as a pastor to deal with. As a, it's part of the most difficult part of my job. Is when I have to sit there and talk with people, maybe even people that are married, people that have sat there in my office and they've just wept, people that I would look at, people that I love, people that I care about, and watch how sexual sin actually reduces a person to just dust, to nothingness. It humbles them, not in a good way. It absolutely crushes and humiliates them. It devastates and destroys the people around their lives who love them and whom they love. It's a horrible thing. And again, we trick ourselves into thinking that, you know, it's no big deal. It's just something I do on my own time, in my own self. And that's one of the things about porn today, is that it's convinced us to think it's just sort of a pleasure I do in my own time at one o'clock in the morning when nobody else is around. I just do it and that's it. But the reality is, is that's the trick of it. That's the faultiness of it, is that it changes the way that we think. You cannot, as a man, engage with your eyes looking at women doing all sorts of things that are just simply wrong and that are just simply not even accurate in terms of regular everyday life and not have that not impact the way that you view other women. I mean, for you to even come to church and see other women that love Jesus, you will begin to view other people with this lens of perversion. That's how you see people. That's what sexual sin, that's what pornography does to your mind, is it changes the way that you view other people. I told you this was gnarly stuff, all right? I know it's like all like, ah, whoa, this is gnarly, okay? But the reality is, again, this is what's going on here in the church of Thyatira. This is what's happening in our culture. It's gnarly stuff, and it destroys people, it devastates lives, it changes the way that we think about other people rather than viewing them as just sort of, you know, people of value, dignity, and respect made in the image of Christ. We see them as pieces of meat. We see them as some sort of a play toy that's at our disposal. And that's what the pornography type of concept puts over our eyes as we view it. It messes up our thinking. It totally destroys the way God originally intended for us to view other men and women. It just destroys it. Destroys the whole system. And to which that, Jesus says, you guys got to turn from this. This is destroying the church. It's destroying your lives. And it's destroying the relationships that you guys have. And his whole point is to turn. Verse 23 again, he says, I will strike children dead. And all the churches that I know, uh, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each according to to your works. He jumps on into verse 24. He says this, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to whom you, to whom you I say, uh, I do not lay any other burden upon you. So it basically says, look, I know that there's other people within the church that aren't engaged in this type of stuff. He says, to you guys, I'm not going to lay any other trip or burden on you guys. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep loving each other. Keep being faithful. Keep enduring. Keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm not going to tell you anything else. But just keep strong. And he also says, the rest of you guys have not learned the deep things of Satan. Honestly, I think this is a perfect example of Jesus being sarcastic. Because a lot of scholars think that maybe this is talking about sort of a, uh, a precursor to what was known as Gnosticism. 
Gnosticism had this phrase called the deep things of God. So here's what Jesus is like. Look, there's some of you around in the church that are talking about the deep things of Satan. It's like Jesus, I think, is getting sarcastic. He's like, it ain't the deep things of God. It's the deep things of Satan. It's the deep things of the deceiver. He's out to deceive you guys. It's not God that you guys are being fed. It's Satan that you guys are being fed. Be aware of it. Jesus is sarcastic, I think, in his response to them. He says, you guys are doing a good job that you're not getting engaged in all this. Verse 26, he goes on, and we finish this up. And he says, to the one who conquers, who has kept my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even I as myself, even I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He was near to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus' whole point is that, look, the one who conquers, I will give him authority over the nations. Um, he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, to be really honest with you, there's a lot of like, question, like, what does that mean? This is actually taken out of Psalm 2. It's a reference to an Old Testament passage. And here's my take on it. Here's what I think is happening. I think Jesus is saying this. Is, look, you guys are sheep. All right, you guys are sheep. And you guys have been, even though you're sheep, you've been entrusted with things to oversee in your life. The most important thing that you've been gifted by God to oversee is yourself. Yourself. Your own eyes. Your own passions. Your own mind. And those who rule themselves well will also rule others well. Those who don't rule themselves well, meaning they just are ruled by themselves. The way that the, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul would have put this is that we are either ruling over our flesh or our flesh is ruling over us. Does it make sense? We are either people that are at every little whim just simply doing what our flesh does. Let me give you an example. This might be a horrible picture. I was down in Costa Rica earlier this year surfing, surf trip. That's all it was. Nothing spiritual about it. It was awesome. Every single day we drove past this like pasture of cows. It was all bulls. Bulls. Milk cows. Every day I saw male cows having sex with other male cows. Just full blown. It was nothing more than just like this big buffet line of homosexual activity amongst cows. It was nasty. All right. That's all I'm going to tell you. It was nasty. But here's the lesson I want to tell you about out of it. They were just acting on animal instinct. Here's the picture that I had in my mind. Every single day, disgusting day after disgusting day of watching this, all right, was to just come to this conclusion that this is nasty. This is just sick and wrong and nasty. And I just had this picture in my mind that, but this is what people that are governed by their flesh do. They just do what cows do and they act on the same level as cows act, just doing whatever the physical body of that animal tells it to do. Does that make sense? So the mentality that just says, I just do whatever I want to do, whatever feels right, think of those cows. Or don't. I know it's graphic. But honestly, it always helps me when I think, this is what's going on. This is what's just going on. My point is this, sorry. Let's try to clean up your brain now. What ends up happening, the reason why I want you to see that is because we are either governing, leading, 
ruling over our flesh or we're being governed and ruled over by our flesh. And here's what I think Jesus is saying. You who conquer, you who rule over your flesh, I will make you ruler over the nations. I will give you the nations to rule over. The word rule, don't think of like conquering despot. Think shepherd. That's what the word means. You will shepherd the nations. It's the whole concept that Jesus teaches all over the place. You're faithful in little things, I'll make you ruler over greater things. We're stewards, guys. We're stewards of our lives, and we're stewards of lives of people entrusted to us. I want you to get this. Your body, your body is a gift from God to you to be stewarded. Let that be a picture in your mind. Your body, your physicality, your sexuality is a gift from God to you because he loves you. And there are unbelievable blessings that come out of that. And there's unbelievable depths of sorrow and defilement and curse that come out of that. And it all depends how you govern it, how you rule over it, how you exercise restraint over yourself. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And the point is this, I think Jesus is saying, those who rule well over the body will also rule over the nations. And he says, finishes in verse 29, who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The point that I want to basically make in all of this is that God does take sin very seriously. I want you to turn your Bible real quick and we'll wrap it up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9. I think it's on the screen. We'll read it real fast. Paul the Apostle wrote this. He says, I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reveler or drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those that are inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And he says, purge the evil person among you. Paul's point to this church in the city called Corinth, which was very similar to Thyatira, by the way, is this. You have to deal, you have to judge, you have to make sure that you do not tolerate sin of sexuality, the sexual abuse of sin within your midst. And he even adds a few other things in there as well. Did you notice that? People that are like greedy, people that are idolaters, drunkards. If you drink too much, you get drunk. Last night you got drunk. That's your regular practice on Saturday nights. I think what Paul would say is repent or stop coming to church. Honestly, stop coming to church. Stop acting like a Christian. Stop. This is really hard for me to even say, but some of you guys, you go to church here, you call yourself Christian, and you live like the world. The whole point that he's saying is that I'm not talking about non-believers. If you're here, you're not a Christian. We're glad you're here. We hope you meet Jesus. But if you're here and you're a Christian, you call yourself a follower of Christ, and you're sleeping with a girlfriend, you're not able to keep your pants up, put your dress down, not able to keep control of your body, I think what Paul would say is stop. Just leave. Don't come. Don't be a part of the group until you deal with the sin that's besetting you. I want to finish with this. It's not the point of being a Christian. It's not so much about the perfection of our lives, 
A Christian is defined not by how perfect he is and the perfection by which he chases after. A Christian is defined by renewed affections. Meaning we love Jesus. Our heart is that now, rather than falling after, going after the deeds of the flesh, going after sexual immorality, constantly falling into this pit where we don't know how to get out of it because we just keep on in this regular, perpetual stumbling and falling. A Christian is one who's defined by renewed affections. His affections have been transformed to where he loves Jesus now. And he's dependent upon Jesus. Does it mean that he falls? No, he definitely will fall. He definitely will sin. And the one who sins, because he's been pulled away by this sin, away from his true affection, Jesus, he repents from that sin and turns back to Jesus. That's the message that Jesus says to his church in Thyatira. That's the message I think we need to communicate to our body. I love you guys. I love Calvary's slow. I love what God's doing here. Our church has grown unbelievably so over the past year. It's been absolutely amazing. But to be really honest with you, it's very possible that maybe our church just simply needs to shrink. Maybe some of us just need to stop coming because we're unwilling to repent and change. We just don't want to. We want to go to church because we feel good about it in ourselves. It's sort of like this little appeasement to our conscience where we walk out of here. We're like, cool, I can walk out of here feeling a little bit better about myself today. But then you just keep going back into this lifestyle of sexual immorality and sinfulness. And you just don't change. Jesus' whole point is that, look, you got to change. I hate the sin that's amongst you. I want to finish with four final things. I'm going to have Greg come on up. And we're going to worship and finish with that. There's four reasons why God basically tells us to flee from this. Four reasons. The first of which, simply this, God is pure and holy. God wants us to look like him. He wants us to reflect him. That's how God wants us to live. Sexual morality is oftentimes defined by some dude or some woman taking advantage of another person for their own expense. You know that God doesn't do that? God never takes advantage of us. God never takes advantage of us. And when people just abuse their sexuality, take advantage of people, it's very unreflective of God. In fact, it refracts God rather than reflects God. It, just, it presents a very broken image of what God's really like when we're meant to reflect the image of God. The second thing is this, sexual sin defiles you. First Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18, he says, don't you know that sexual sin is unlike other sins and that other sins are done, you know, outside of the body, but this sin is done against your own body? You are defiled by sexual sin. Thirdly, sexual sin also defiles other people. You know the feeling that you get after sexual encounter, if you have that? And you just feel absolutely filthy. You feel like you want to wash yourself, but you really can't. No matter how hard you scrub, you just can't go deep enough. That is a perfect description of defiled. You're defiled. Your soul has been defiled. And to be really honest with you, those emotions and feelings can go on for years. This is why abuse Victims, people that have been defiled when they were young children, girls that were sexually molested when they were five years old, when they're 35 years old, they still feel it. They've been defiled. They've been defiled. Sexual sin defiles other people. The final thing is this, is sexual sin ultimately robs God from the opportunity of being your ultimate joy. I want you to feel that. When we 
turn to other things, not just sexual sin, but anything, and say, I want this because this makes me happy. What we end up saying at the end of the day is God doesn't make me happy. God is not all satisfying. God doesn't please me to the very core of my being. But this other thing does. And that's where the sin lay. So this church of Thyatira, Jesus writes, I just want you to repent. I just want you to come back to me. I want you to turn away from the sin that's tripping you up and destroying you and come back to relationship with me. I know this is a tough message. It's gnarly stuff. It's not easy. You're not going to walk out of here all happy and chipper. But to be really frank, maybe it's something we all need to hear about. We need to consider that at the end of the day, no matter what type of defiling we've created in other people, what type of defilement's been done against us, there's actually forgiveness found in Christ. There's forgiveness and cleansing and washing provided in Jesus. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. Some of us maybe need to respond by just confessing our sin to Christ, asking him to wash us and cleanse us. Some of us need to respond to Jesus, just asking him to wash us from being sinned against, knowing that Jesus cleanses and purges our conscience. We're going to respond also by giving our tithes and our offerings, because we love God, we love Jesus, he's a cheerful giver, we want to be cheerful givers. We're going to respond also by singing, singing songs of praise and love to God. Because God is a good God that washes us and cleanses us and forgives us. He's a really good God. He gives us time to repent. If he wasn't a good God, he wouldn't have given a call to repent. He would have just come and judged. But he is a good God. And his message to the church of Thyatira, probably perhaps the message to you and to myself, is if these things are going on in your life, just repent. Turn away from them. Turn to me. Be washed. Be cleansed. Those who overcome, those who conquer yourself, you got an amazing future ahead of you, is his whole point. Jesus, thank you for your word. It's heavy stuff. And God, we don't want to water it down, soften it in any way, just to somehow so that we can feel better about ourselves. Lord, we want it to impact us, and we want to feel that impact with the weight that it was intended to be felt. And we want to create the emotions that it was intended to create. Even those emotions are... are, are are extremely difficult and painful and embarrassing in a public setting. So God, we ask you right now that you would just fall upon us and help us to worship you. To put you in the proper place of being the center of our affections.